Um, I want to start off with a quote from one of the most epic movies ever made. Coach Boone and Remember the Titans. Raise your hand if you know Remember the Titans. All right, let me just see how, how, many, how many really young... Raise your hand if you do not know what Remember the Titans is. Okay, there's a couple. You're young enough to not know. That's okay. Uh, there, it is a judgment upon your parents. There's no doubt. Uh, <laughs> but you are fine. Your parents need to answer to the Lord for that. But... Um, in Remember the Titans, just an absolutely phenomenal movie. I've used, the, this, I've used that movie to, to illustrate or to start out one of my sermons before. And so, <clears throat> if you remember, they're all away at camp, and the alarms go off. And Coach Boone, who's Denzel Washington, brings them on. He says, wake up. It's late. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. We're going to take a little run through the woods. And if you remember, they go for this insane run through the woods <clears throat> to the Battle of Gettysburg. By the way, that's an awesome coach move. Like, that's a pro coach move. Um, if you could get a football camp that's within running distance of the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, I'm going to ask my lovely and sweet bride, I'm going to need a drink. She spoiled me, and then for like three months, she left me a water bottle here, and... Uh, and, um, and now she's just leaving me out to dry, literally. That's, that's, that's how it is. The, I do something that I could do myself, and I blame my wife for it. That's the very good insight into our marriage, by the way. Um, but, so Coach Boone, he, he wakes up the, the high school students, the football team, and if you're at all familiar with what's going on in this movie, effectively they are one of the first integrated schools in history. And so they have an all-white football team is now being integrated, thank you, with an all-black football team. And so the movie is just an absolutely phenomenal movie on the issue of racial divide and how to unify uh, for the purpose of the common goal and love. It's an amazing movie. But he, he runs them all to the Battle of Gettysburg, and he gives a powerful speech. And he says, 50,000 people died here. He said, this grass was filled with blood of young men fighting the same fight that we are fighting ourselves today. Coach Boone says this to them. He says, if we do not come together, we will be destroyed just as they were destroyed. So he encourages them to unify. And then he says, maybe, he sa or he says, you don't have to like each other, but you will respect each other. And maybe, just maybe, we can learn to play this game like men. An unbelievable, it was a great way to start my morning to watch that quote to make sure I had, had it accurate. But what an amazing call to unity. Now, our text today the Apostle Paul is having a Gettysburg speech with his football team in which he's telling them that the church must be unified around the cross of Christ. And so turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 10 through 17. <clears throat> now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the whole passage then we're going to walk our way through in the three key distinctions in this text today. And so read with me in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that none of you can say you were baptized in my name. 
I, I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. What we see in this, in this overarching thing is we go back to the overarching uh, thrust of this whole passage is that the church must be unified around the cross of Christ. You'll notice that in every point we have throughout the sermon, it has to do with the cross of Christ. Why? Because the very last verse says, I, I came to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect, or in other words, power. And so we don't want to empty out the power of the cross of Christ. And so this is what Paul is wanting the church in Corinth to know, is that the church must be unified around the cross of Christ. I see so many new faces. I want to do a quick uh, reminder of what we discussed last week in the introduction to Corinth. This is a very awesome city. It's, it was uh, repopulated after it was... Man, I'm going to go way too long on that. Suffice it to say, Corinth is an extremely cool, wealthy town uh, through which there was lots of slaves and freedmen. And then there was a number of wealthy people in the state or in the city as well. They were known for trade. They were known for their Olympic games called the Isthmus Games. I'm going to say it one time and one time only because I messed it up a lot last week. So they, were, they had the, game, the Olympic Games, and then there was another set of sporting games, and that, that was held right out of Corinth. They were very well known for these things. There was definitely a, um, a Los Angeles, New York City-esque uh, town. It had some wild and crazy things going on. But the biggest problem in the church in Corinth was that Paul was there for 18 months, and he had a large... Uh, large following of people who believed the gospel and were converted to Christianity. However, they had never been in church ever. And so after those 18 months, Paul leaves and they begin to fall back in to their pre-Christian habits. The two biggest ones of which were that they believed they were superior to Paul himself and they believed they were so holy they were already experiencing heaven and so they had kind of had this weird belief that the resurrection wasn't going to happen because they already were resurrected. They, they were so holy that they, what would heaven be? And so Paul is writing to them, and he is wanting to correct them, saying, you are gifted. God did an amazing work in you, but it's not done yet. And so he's going to write to them and co to correct them. And so we, we set the stage with this context last week, and now he goes from his very kind, very gracious introduction and greeting, and now he comes in and he begins to push the door open and step into the house to have a family talk. And in this talk, he is calling them to unity. And in verse 10, he says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you, be that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. Paul is saying, church, be unified in what Christ did for us on the cross. Paul is right out of the gates. He's saying to them, you've been enriched. All of these things, he's very well aware of their problems. He's fixing to get into them, but he calls them to unity. And he says, church, be completely unified in what Christ did for you on the cross. Now, I want to, to make a, I want to define something. When I say cross of Christ, what I am referring to is the whole picture of the gospel. Now, this is really a part one sermon, and the part two comes next week, where he explains this cross of Christ definition himself. When he says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. And so the cross of Christ is not just a phrase, it's, it's, an, it's an idea, it's a reality that Christ is God in the flesh. 
Christ came from heaven, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. Yeah, we're disqualified there. And, and then he willingly offered himself as the debt payment for your sins and mine. And so he died. The scripture says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so the cross of Christ is the reality that Christ willingly stood in your place on the cross, died, and said, it is finished, and died, was buried, and then rose from the dead in resurrection power. So all of this is what I'm saying. When I say the cross of Christ, I want you to understand. I'm not just meaning the tree, the, the wood that he was on. I am, I am talking about the reality of the work completed on the cross of Christ. And that is what Paul has in mind for his readers as well. And so I wanted to clearly let you know that when we say the cross of Christ, we mean the gospel, the good news that Jesus died in your place for your sins so that you can be forgiven by believing in him and following him and then be made right with God the Father through Jesus. So uh, he calls us to this. Now I want to note the attitude and the posture of this apostle. I, I can't quit thinking of how this is challenging me as a parent because these kids of his need to be corrected, but yet he is so dignified and kind and gracious in his correction. Look at how he starts out. He says, now I urge you. The urge there is the, it's a threefold urge. He's calling them to something. Now, um, if we say urge, we might think it's urgent. Hey, I've, uh, urgently, I need you. No, no, no. He's, he's doing this emphatic plea, even begging, if you will. Now, he is the apostle. He is the starter of that church. He was with them for 18 months, and he has the authority to demand. But he knows that one of the problems is that they're already beginning to not trust him as a leader in their church. And so he graciously takes a humble posture. Parents, maybe, maybe you've got some teen kids that deserve a whooping, maybe deserve more, maybe deserve a grounding, maybe deserve a whole lot of something. Corinth deserved a whole lot of something. But the man in authority over them took a humble posture and urged them and then pleaded with them, in a sensible way as to why they should course correct. That was, that's not even anywhere remotely close to my notes. That's just the Lord dealing with me as a parent there. He says, I urge you, I'm begging you. Then he says, brothers and sisters. This is, I don't know much Greek. I have a very, very elementary understanding of it, and I have to use some software to make it easier. Um, but there's one of my favorite words is uh, Adelphoi. I don't know if you pronounce it right, but it means brothers. And in this context, the way he's using it, it's referring to brothers and sisters. And so instead of saying, I demand you children, listen to me. He says, I'm begging you, my brothers, my sisters in the faith. I'm, I'm urging you. What is he urging them to, to do? There's three things. Ready? That all of you agree in what you say. That there be no divisions and that you be united with the same understanding and same conviction. Now, we're going to talk about this. Uh, it's, it's okay to disagree in Christ. It's not okay to be divided in Christ. So we're going to talk about that in point number two. But in this first part, he says, I urge you to agree in what you say. Again, in, in Hebrews 12, 14, I've got some scriptures at the end. I would love for you to throw those up there real quick. In Hebrews 12, 14, he says, pursue peace with everyone and holiness without it no one will see the Lord. The next one is in Colossians. Colossians calls it, says, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. We already read in Ephesians 4, 3, where he says, uh, make every effort to keep unity in the bond of peace. Make every effort. And so he's, he's calling them, he's calling them to actively pursue unity together. 
If any of you live with anyone other than a dog, it takes work to get along, doesn't it? And even for me, my dog is a jerk. She oftentimes tears our unity apart, okay? And so if you live with anyone besides you, yourself, and you, unity is something you must work for. It's something, honestly, you must fight for. It's something that he says make every effort to keep this unity. And so Paul is saying to them, I urge you. He says, I urge you that all of you agree in what you say. say wow, that's pretty crazy. Then he also says, I, I, I urge you that there be no divisions among you. Now, this, this word division, okay, I, I don't usually quote Greek, but there were some really cool words in this passage today. This one is called a schismata. Anyone say schismata? Right. It's the word in which we get the word schism. I don't know what it means, but it's what we get. And so schism, right, this is a tear or, a, or to rent something apart, which is old wording, so it means to tear. And so there's times where the apostles or the disciples, when Jesus had called them, they were mending their nets. If anyone can remember some of the gospel stories, they were on the shores mending their nets. They were mending schismata. They were mending a tear that had taken place in their nets. And so this is what Paul is saying. He says, I urge you to agree in everything that you say. Again, we'll talk about we can disagree, but he's, he's talking simply about the gospel here. You must agree on the gospel is what he's saying. So the, agree together. Let there not be any tears between any of you or in the church at all when it comes to the gospel. So he says, I don't want this. It's not so much. Now, I wasn't aware of this, but in studying for this, there's, there's camps that believe that these were almost as if political parties that it was a denomination almost to follow Paul, to follow Apollos. And, and the, the commentator that I was reading said it's most likely not what's going on. There's actually very little evidence to prove that. But there is something going on in the unity of the church where they are being torn apart over some disagreements on their faith. And so he says, I want you to agree in what you say. I don't want there to be any tears in the fellowship of this church as it pertains to the cross of Christ. And the last thing is I want you united in the same understanding and conviction. This is a threefold encouragement, a threefold plea to call them to remember what Christ did for you on the cross. What a great application for us. I remember uh, one time I was talking with a, a woman who doesn't even, she's not even a Christian, but it was this phrase of, uh, are you going to be mad about this five years from now? Then don't be mad about it now. You know, and I, I know that's, it's not, it's not a one size fits all. You're like, well, I was mad about it four years and 30 or 300 days later, you know, maybe not even five, but we can kind of get petty sometimes in the church. If you listen to the, uh, the podcast that we did with uh, the importance of women and their ministry in the church, if you listen to that one, there was a, a very problematic brother that, that caused a big problem for one of the, the, the women that was on the podcast. The church sometimes can be the most evil place. You can see, sorry, you can see evil sometimes more clearly in a church than you can in the world, and that is an indictment against us. That would bring us into a correction from Paul where he says, I am begging you to agree in the gospel. It made me think of the movie Lone Survivor. If you've watched that, there was um, four Navy SEALs. They were doing a mission and it all went wrong. They didn't agree on what they should do. But the leader made a decision, and they all unified around it. We're going to talk about it again. You can disagree in the church. That's fine. But we cannot be divided. So in Lone Survivor, even though they weren't all in agreement as to what should be done, they all fought together to keep each other alive until, of course, there was the uh, tragic fate for three of them. 
And I tried to find a more encouraging war story, but my memory failed me, okay? Uh, nevertheless, it's true. In church life, we're not always going to be happy with one another. We're not always going to agree on what should happen. Not everyone, when we started this church, not everyone was on board with Wednesday nights. Not everyone really liked that. It was kind of an inconvenience, but they really wanted to be a part of our church, and so they came on Wednesday nights. And it was great. God moved. We saw dozens of people. I'm looking around. I'm seeing many of you who came from death to life during the Wednesday nights. Now, not everyone was on board when we felt the Lord leading us to move to Sundays. Now, it was a 94% success vote, so it was very, very, it was very unanimous almost. But I was so amazed because of those who voted no, I spoke with, or they spoke to me, and they explained, no matter what, we're going to go with whatever the church decides. And I said, praise God for unity and the purpose of why this church exists. We've not always agreed. Now listen, we're fixing to build a building. I know that we're not all going to agree. Lance has some horrible ideas. We're not all going to agree on what the building should look like and, and the color of the walls. And the, but guess what? It's not going to divide us. We will not let that, by God's grace, we will not let that divide us because <clears throat> we remain united in our purpose in which Christ died for us and rose for us and we will tell all of Bar Nun and Casper area about that glorious truth. Now, the reason that Paul gives such a passionate plea for unity is because he is truly, no pun intended, appalled by what he is seeing in the Corinthian church. He's beside himself that there is a tear in the fabric of the church in Corinth. And so look with me. Now we're going to be in, in a chunk of scriptures. We're going to be in 11 through 16. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I'm going to wait and stop right there. We'll go on with, we'll go on with it later. But Paul gives them this passionate plea to unity because, as we see now in, in, in this second text, the second group here, is that division dishonors the cross of Christ. Division dishonors the cross of Christ. Now, Paul has learned of this situation by Chloe's people. Let me just give you a, 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 um, a disclaimer. Just because my title says pastor doesn't mean that I've got a special edition of the Holy Spirit that makes the whole Bible make sense to me at all times, okay? Um, I utilize what is called commentaries. Commentaries are people whose name is Dr. So-and-so because they wrote a book so good about a Bible, a book in the Bible, that they're experts on it, okay? They're still not God, but my goodness, are they helpful, and so as I was reading this commentary, guys, I'm going to be honest, I had no clue what it meant that I have heard from Chloe's people. I thought Chloe was a woman in the church who was a wealthy woman who probably had a house or had a meeting of believers in her home. And so she went and told Paul about this. Not at all. Interestingly enough, I have to share with you, I, I knew none of this, but I think it's really, really, really cool. Okay, now... Towards the end of the book of Corinthians, we will see that there were three members in the church who took a letter to Paul, and, and that's how Paul then wrote this letter back, okay? Now, they may have told Paul a little bit about what was going on. However, it would have no authority because if they were followers of Paul in a church where there's a lot of not followers of Paul, he would have lost his authority to have even said, I heard that there's a problem amongst you. And they would have been like, yeah, duh, because your little teacher's pets told you about it. They didn't even tell you the truth. And so 
Who is Chloe and who are her people? This is so cool what I learned. Chloe, we do not know if she's a Christian or not. There's no evidence that she is a member of the church in Corinth. But she is well known in Corinth. So she was very likely a wealthy Asian woman. And in, this, in her wealth, she had a business. And most likely had slaves and freedmen. And she must have been doing business between Corinth and Ephesus, where Paul was when he wrote this to them. And so Chloe's people, now had they been relatives of Chloe, they would have gone off of the father's name, even if the father was dead. So the fact that they're called Chloe's people means that they are connected to her in some way, which would most likely mean it is her industry, it is her company through which they were working. Okay? They were not members of the Corinthian church. Had they been, he would have called them most likely by name or saying members of your body. But he says, as it is, I heard this from Chloe's people. And so again, Chloe is most likely a wealthy woman who had a business and her employees or you know, we have not the same issue of slavery in our most recent past, but some of her slaves or freedmen were doing business for her back and forth between Corinth and Ephesus. Now catch this. Sometime while they were in Ephesus, they were converted to the gospel and most likely knew Paul very well. And as they went back and forth to Corinth, while they're working in Corinth, they would have went to church. And they would have went to the church in Corinth with the Corinthians. And they would have learned of this schism, this tear, these quarrels. And as they came back, they would have reported back to Paul in the church in Ephesus, this is what's going on. And so Paul received a letter asking questions, and he probably was concerned as to why are they... This, something is awry. Something's not right. And then some of his people that he knows and probably led to the Lord or that they got saved in Ephesus went to church in Corinth, came back and went, holy smokes, they got some problems, Paul. Paul goes, that makes this letter make so much more sense. Now I will write back to them with a full context of what's happening. Isn't that cool? That's so cool. I was learning about the history of that. And I was like, that's more exciting than the whole sermon. I don't know. I enjoyed that. So he says, I've learned of this, and I'm, I'm laughing so hard because you can only imagine that the church in Corinth thinks they've been getting away with something. They let Paul's friends send a letter, but they're like, they still don't know that we don't trust him. And then he says, now it's been reported to me by Chloe's people. And they're like, oh, crap. He knows. <laughs> That's why his intro was so piercing to our souls. He knows. He knows about it. They thought they've been getting away with something while he's away. But in God's grace, <clears throat> in God's grace, he made sure that there were some good godly snitches that came and visited on a Sunday, came back and told Paul what's really going on in the church in Corinth. <clears throat> so he says... He says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is rivalry among you. Now, they begin to say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And so what's happening here is an unnecessary, an uninvited attachment to the leaders of the church in Corinth. Paul planted the church, and when Paul left, Apollos came in. And, and there's, it, there's no issues here between Paul, Peter, and Apollos. Again, these, <clears throat> these tears, these attachments to certain leaders is taking place without the leader's permission. If you were to have surveyed Paul, Apollos, and Peter, none of them would have said, I, never, I, I, I did not ask, or they would have said, I never asked for any of these people to say that they followed me. And so there's this issue, this infighting within the church and, and there's these weird things going on. Again, so let me just tell you who these people are. Paul is Paul the Apostle. We've talked about him. You should know him. Uh, or at least he's the author of this letter. He planted this church. He was there for a year and a half. Then Apollos came in after him. Apollos is the one who knew the gospel, but not, was not exactly correct on it. So Priscilla and Aquila were two of Paul's co-workers. They taught him a more excellent way. They corrected him in his gospel. So then Apollos becomes a powerful leader in the church in Corinth. Now, Apollos was a very well-studied Greek. 
which is what is going on in the Corinthian culture. Apollos was most likely much more eloquent than Paul, much more uh, trained in the Greek wisdom. And so the Corinthians, who have only known Greek philosophy and eloquent wisdom and superiority, they then attach themselves to Apollos because he's more astute. He's more status than our Apostle Paul, who's not even an apostle. This is what they're having some issues here. Well, then where in the heck does Cephas come from? Cephas is Peter, Peter the apostle. So it's possible that Peter was traveling around with his wife and went to Corinth and met the church in Corinth, or in Corinth and spent some time with them, and some of them may have taken a liking to, to Peter. Also, it would have been totally understandable that Peter's reputation made it all the way to Corinth because he was a well-known apostle and leader in the church. And so somehow, Peter has now gotten thrown into the mix. And so I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. Paul takes up the issue of though, I follow Christ. It's already bad news that someone's saying I follow Paul because as the commentator says, the fact that there is a following of Paul means that there is an anti-following of Paul. And Paul only taught the gospel. So if you're anti-Paul, you're anti-gospel. And so he's like, it's not about me. I only gave you Jesus. So if you don't like my teaching, you don't like Jesus. Again, this is not an arrogant pastor here. This is the founder of a church saying, I literally taught you nothing other than Jesus Christ. So if you don't like what I taught you, you're departing from the gospel itself. This isn't someone saying that I, I preach better than, than whoever. This is Paul saying, I, I've literally only given to you the gospel. And so Paul picks up this issue of I belong to Christ. What an indictment it is amongst believers to think that you are the only ones following the actual teachings of Christ. There's lots of different uh, areas in which we disagree in the church. There's lots of views. There's lots of um, you know, think about, oh, here, here's one, one great camp of this is the end times people. The end times people. If you are an end times person, you know who you are, and you know who your enemies are. I'm pre-trib, I'm post-trib, I'm all-millennial, I'm pre-millennial, I'm this, and this is the only way that God would do it. I promise you, if someone is an end times person, you know them. I am a pan-millennialist. Do you want to know what that is? means it's all going to pan out in the end, okay? <laughs> but here's what's crazy is even in the church, someone will say, I'm this. And the other one will say, I'm this. And we will say, you're dumb. And then Jesus is like, you're all going to be with me in eternity. What are we doing? And we get so focused on these little details, and they're important. I'm not saying they're not important. But some people will say, oh, I'm a King James only. Well, I'm a ESV only. Well, I'm like, well, I'm a Southern Baptist, and they give us discounts on Bibles, so I'm a Christian Standard Bible only. We can get in a hissy about a lot of things, church. And when we find ourselves getting in fights about these things, it's because we have forgotten the main thing. And the main thing is that you and I are deserving of hell. Our sin has separated us and brought death into our lives, and when we die, we will be forever in torment called hell because of our sin. And the grace of God is that in the cross of Christ, we can be forgiven. And when we are focused on that, these things stay where they're supposed to be, which is outside of the central tenets of the gospel, okay? All of it is important but when we take our eyes off of what's most important, we find ourselves tearing ourselves and dividing ourselves in the church. But Paul is angry about this, and he says, "Was Paul? Or is Christ divided?" What a phenomenal, phenomenal rhetorical question to prove to them the folly of their beliefs. Is Christ divided? Was Paul? crucified for you. 
or were you baptized in Paul's name? He's angry about this. Literally, Paul goes on a rant. If you've ever read much of the Bible, you will find that sometimes Paul, inspired by God, God still used his personality, Paul would go off on these little tangents. Sometimes he'd get really excited about the gospel. Sometimes he'd get really excited about a point. Here he gets really angry about what's going on. And so listen to the rant. You can, he catches himself. It's so awesome. I love this. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you can say you were baptized in my name. I did, however, baptize the household of Stephanus. Now that his memory has been jogged, he just goes ahead and gives a disclaimer. Beyond that, I don't remember who I baptized. But I love he starts out, I'm, I'm so glad I only baptized these two people. Well, in the matter of fact, <clears throat> and Stephanus. And I don't remember who else. <laughs> so if this was a text message, he would have been like, ah, I need, to, I need to unsend that. Praise God, it was a letter. And so he had time to jog his memory. And so, but ultimately he gives this disclaimer and he says, uh, beyond that, I don't even know who I baptized because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He's not saying <coughs> that baptism isn't important. He's saying that's not what he came there for. And somehow they're tying their salvation and their status based off of who baptized them. So maybe Paul baptized some, Apollos or Peter. And, and so there's this weird just, again, all of this comes back to this pride that they want to be the best Christians in the world. And, and, and God is saying, what are you, I've given all of my children all that I have. All of you have been enriched through salvation, so you're not better than one another. And, and whoever baptized you has no meaning to your salvation. So again, this isn't saying that baptism isn't important. This is called biblical theology. You read Scripture in light of Scripture. Some of the best baptism texts come from Paul in his other letters. But the context, they're trying to equate a superior spiritual status to who baptized them. And Paul is simply saying to them, I can't even remember who I baptized. It's so insignificant in the realm of what's really going on. And that is the gospel. And so he's not saying baptism isn't important. He's saying this is not the importance. It's Christ. Again, this, I want to be clear, this doesn't mean you can't disagree in the church. Paul and Silas used to be great friends together in Acts, and Silas wanted to bring on John Mark, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and Paul says, no, he abandoned us last time, I'm not going with him. They had such a heavy disagreement on it, they split into two ministry teams, and one went one way, one went the other. That's a, that's a, that is a disagreement, is it not? But what, did they stop serving the Lord? No, they kept going. Paul disagreed with Peter at a time and called him out to his face. He didn't stop working with Peter. Paul had a disagreement with John Mark. And later on in the book of Acts, guess who is with Paul on a missionary journey? John Mark. You can disagree as Christians. That's fine. A lot of them are wrong. No, I'm just kidding. You can disagree as Christians. That's fine. But we cannot be divided on the gospel. We cannot be divided on what Christ has done for us. So let me ask you this. The illustration is if you've ever had a, a, a run in like a, you've got like a little thread coming out of your shirt. If you're like me or any five-year-old, eight-year-old, 10-year-old, 13-year-old boy, you take that and you yank it as hard as you possibly can. What that typically does is make it look like you have bigger biceps than you do because it tightens your whole shirt because you just ripped that thread all the way through and it tightens up on you, right? I like it. What I have learned since being married and, and having a mother that tried and a wife that has now succeeded, that you get a pair of scissors and you cut the thread, okay? I, I tried for a while, like you try and pinch it in there and then you hope you've got it solid and then you pull it and pop it and it breaks. You're like, ha got the thread. The smartest decision is just to get a pair of scissors and cut it off and just let it lay, okay? You can't wind it back in there unless you're a pro seamstress, so you just cut it and let it go. Because sometimes pulling it makes it worse. What I would ask you, church, is is there any tear between you 
in anyone in this church. Maybe there's a decision that the elders made that has rubbed you the wrong way. Maybe there is something that a member has said to you or done to you or you think they did to you and they don't even know that they did it and that's caused a, a tear in your fellowship with someone in the church. Maybe there's a tear in the fellowship of you and someone in your family. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's an, an adult family member. What I would call on you to do is get some scissors and cut it. And I don't mean cut them out of your life. I'm saying cut off what is causing a problem between you and mend the tear. You're not always able to do that with everyone, especially if it's family and adults or whatever. But tears only ruin unity. I'm calling on you, church, that you may need to come and talk with one of your leaders you may need to go talk with someone in the church. You may need to go talk with someone in your family. But you may also, you may need, also may just need to forgive them and cut the thread. They may not have any clue that they ever hurt you. But whatever way, don't let a tear come in between you and the unity with which God wants in the church and what God wants in your family and in your home. See, Paul was passionately against this issue because he wants them to know the importance of what the real mission is and what is the substance of their salvation. Look with me in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Paul is finally going to end his, his teaching here when he says, the power of salvation is in the cross of Christ. See, he's already said, church, you need to be unified in what the cross of Christ has done for you. Because to have division is to dishonor the cross of Christ. And why is that important? Because the, the power of salvation is in the cross of Christ. He's bringing this full, this issue full circle. And he says, I don't want the cross to be emptied of its effect. What is the cross's effect? To save you. And so Paul says, I was not sent to baptize. I was sent to preach the message of salvation. And in that message, it is not to be preached with eloquent wisdom. They were saying in order to be a Christian, you had to have this higher knowledge, this eloquent wisdom. And so Paul is saying, no, it's not, because I didn't preach it with that, and you got saved. What a dagger. <laughs> in the argument against the Corinthians. You say that you must have eloquent wisdom. I preach none of it. What say you then of your salvation? It is in the cross of Christ is the power of salvation. To give that uh, illustration, I want to tell you about a guy named Sal Sperna. Sal Sperna, I've used this illustration as well. This is a sermon of repeat illustrations. <clears throat> Sal Sperna was, in, was drunk in a bar next to another man drunk in a bar. If you can remember here, as a while back, I said, two drunks walk into a bar. That's how I started my sermon. And um, so anyways, you've got Sal Sperna and another drunk guy. They're both at a bar. Somehow throughout this conversation, the drunk guy, we find out he's a Baptist. And for the rest of this story, he will be called Drunk Baptist. And so Drunk Baptist looks over at Sal and says, it's going to be really bad for you in the judgment day. And Sal says, well, why me and not you? We're both doing the same things. He says, yeah, except you're not saved. And he says, well, what is this salvation? I want to know. And he says, well, if I had my Bible, I'd show you. And the bartender says, this is a true story, the bartender says, would you like to use mine? 
So the bartender hands Drunk Baptist a Bible, and Drunk Baptist leads Sal through the gospel presentation in the scriptures. I'm not sure what verses he used, but he walked through verses in the Bible showing that Jesus died for your sins, and if you repent and believe, you can be saved. And Sal Sperna went home that night and prayed and asked Christ into his life because why? It wasn't, uh, it, or let, me, let me say, so he went home, he got saved that night. Sal went on to pastor a church in Houston, Texas and then to lead his own missionary agency. All because Drunk Baptist was sharing the gospel with the bartender's Bible, drunk in a bar. Now, that Drunk Baptist should not have been drunk in the bar. Now, if he was in the bar doing gospel ministry, that's one thing. But he was partaking of the sin while calling the sinners sinners, okay? Those crazy Baptists, I tell you. Why did Sal get saved? Was it a phenomenal gospel presentation from a drunk Baptist? Was it the unlikely placed Bible of the bartender? It was the message of the cross of Christ. The power of salvation is in the cross Christ. That message is so powerful that someone who is living in sin, drunk in a bar, can lead someone to Christ because it's not them that's the power. It's the message that has the power. Amen. Church, this should encourage you. You can evangelize better than a drunk Baptist. We had a guy in a church I used to pastor and uh, he had a very strong alcohol problem. He was not a member of the church at the time, but he had a strong issue with alcohol. And when he'd get real drunk, he'd go around doing door-to-door evangelism in Bear Creek. And uh, so everyone knew that when, when this guy came a-knocking, he'd been drinking. He wanted to talk about Jesus. <laughs> so, woo! This should encourage you because you don't have to be smarter than the skeptical friend that doesn't believe. You don't have to be more brilliant than the doctor that you've been seeing for years. And you don't have to be so creative as to present the gospel in a beautiful artistic way to someone you met that loves art. The pressure is not on you to convince, to, uh, to make it perfect. Now, <clears throat> this is not a license to be lazy in our evangelism. But it's a comfort that despite all of our prayers, all of our training, all the podcasts we've listened to, all the books that we've read, all the questions that we've asked on how to be good at evangelism, we don't have to rely upon that alone. The power of evangelism is the communication of the gospel, and that message alone is what changes souls. If you're like me, you may be off to a slow start in your evangelistic endeavors of 2023. I'm laughing because my first message of the year was preach the gospel, share the gospel, and I need to listen to my own sermon. But I want to encourage you, church, you don't have to have all the answers, but brag on what Jesus did for the person that you're talking to and let God change their lives. Looking over here at, at now my sister Shelby and... Uh, Sister in the faith, because here not too long ago, she also came to put her faith in Jesus Christ. And as she shared her testimony with us in our membership interview the other day, she, she just walked us through how God so graciously, there were some tough times in her life, there were some things that kind of stripped away what it was, and, and it brought her to a point where she said, I, I'm, I'm looking for something. And she found a, a YouTube channel, if I'm correct, right, of, of uh, this woman who was preaching the gospel on her YouTube channel. And, and then there was, you know, just little things here and there. Was, there was some stuff she remembered even before she gave her life to Christ. She was praying, asking God to provide for the needs that she had. And she said it was awesome as she watched God meet those needs. Even without full faith, she was saying, thank you, God, I know that came from you. And it was all these gracious and tender signposts of God saying, I'm fixing to do something in you. I want you to believe. And so then... 
This is awesome. Is, is she gets to meet Trent, and somehow and all that, Trent and her start talking about, it was after you met Trent, right? Yeah, so she meets Trent. Trent's excited because he's been praying for God to send him a woman. She's been praying for the gospel. So God's like, hey, I'll do this. I'll bring her a man with the gospel and a woman. And so that's a, the only case of missionary dating I've ever seen in my life ever work. But, but Trent is like, listen, I'm not so much worried about that. I want you to know Jesus. And on their first few days, they just talked about Jesus. And somewhere along that line, Shelby said, yes, Lord, I believe. Isn't that a powerful story? It's not in the, me- it's not in the messenger. It's in the message. You are not the key factor of someone's salvation but you may be the vehicle Jesus uses to bring it to them. Don't let the gospel stop with you. Robbie Gallaty is a great preacher, and he says that the gospel came to you because it was on its way to someone else. Paul is telling them, I didn't preach with eloquent wisdom. I just told you what Jesus did for you, and you got saved. What an encouragement to us. We don't have to be great at evangelism because we have a great message that can do the work itself. I'm going to invite Ashley to come up and, and close us out. Julianne is serving in the kids' ministry back there. and So Ashley's going to close us out. But to anyone in this room or anyone watching this live stream, <clears throat> what I want to say is in the spirit of this text, I have no fancy, I have no special invitation, no eloquent wisdom, just simply this. God loved you so much that he was gracious to send Jesus to die for your sins so that you don't have to. This is a rescue that doesn't need any work on your part. The life raft has been thrown, and he says, if you will simply take hold of what I've offered you, I can save you from your sins. There's an amazing part of Shelby's testimony is that her quarterly review, her boss has said, there's something different about you. You are so much happier. You are so different. That is what Christ can do. Life is not perfect. It doesn't take every pain away, but it gives you a companion to walk with you as you try and walk with God. So very simply today, if you're here this morning and you have not turned from your sins and believed in Jesus, my, my question to you is why not now? Why not after hearing of all that Jesus has done for you, are you ready to turn and live your life for Jesus? With heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you, I encourage you to surrender your life to Christ through prayer, simply saying that you're a sinner and that you need Jesus to forgive you and that you're committed to following him. And if that's you, you can pray this with me. God, I've messed up. I've sinned against you. I need you to rescue me. You sent Jesus for that purpose. He took my sins on the cross He rose in victory over sin and death. He did what I cannot do for myself. So today I take that rescue. I follow you, Jesus. Forgive my sins. Teach me to walk with you. My life is yours. I surrender. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that, please don't leave today without telling me or one of our pastors. There'll be no embarrassment. There'll be no, um, I'm not going to make you get on the mic and tell everyone about what you did. We want to help you walk with Jesus. So please, if you prayed that, don't leave without telling someone. If you prayed that and you're watching live stream, message us. Let us know. God, I pray now for our church that you help us to be a church filled with unity, a church that knows what you've done for us on the cross, and that informs everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.